0: Like every presidential inauguration, the ceremony that took place this past Wednesday was was full of all kinds of pomp and circumstance. And and like every inauguration, some Americans were left celebrating it, and and others were left frustrated. Some were encouraged and inspired by the music and the various speeches, and, and others critiqued the music and critiqued the speeches. But there seemed to be nearly universal praise for Amanda Gorman, the youngest inaugural poet in U.S. history. From her words to her polished delivery, to her story that involves an auditory processing disorder and all kinds of speech therapy. She didn't deny the challenges that are in front of us as a country, and yet there was clear reason in her mind to have hope as well. Now, I'm not sure if she was intentional in the way that she echoed Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount at the end of her poem, but the multiple references that she made earlier in her poem to Scripture leads me to believe that she she may have been intentional. She, She concludes with this, There is always light if only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. And Jesus says to his first followers, you are salt, you are light. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. If only we're brave enough to see it, brave enough to be it. We've started this year by looking at our shared values as a church, convictions that are all connected to one another, convictions that guide our actions, and our last shared value highlights our call to be salt and light in today's world. It was born out of conversations that our vision team had about 18 months ago that recognized a need to pair our historical calling as followers of Jesus with present-day realities. It's the idea that when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, and when he responded to love God and love neighbor, that, that those words meant something, that those words speak a truth that transcends time and transcends culture, but at the same time, the way that we live out that commandment today might look different than it did When Jesus answered the question, it's the reminder that we are supposed to both study God's word to learn from it and act on it, being brave enough to be both salt and light. Our second scripture passage this morning comes out of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesians three, it it starts with Paul talking about his personal calling, his, his individual calling to preach to the Gentiles about the boundless riches of Christ. And and then he turns to the church's calling in Ephesus, saying that the ultimate role of the church is to continue the work that Jesus started. That that is the role of the church. Picking up at verse 14, we read this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And to know that love that surpasses knowledge, that that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work with us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my best childhood friends, really from middle school up through high school, was one of the smartest students in our class. And when it came to our senior year in high school, we all knew that he had ambitious goals. So he went to the counselor and he, he gave the counselor a, a list of colleges where he wanted to apply. And, and there were some of the most well known and most rigorous schools throughout the entire country. And, and the counselor, that they sat down together, the counselor listened, and then the counselor said something along the lines of, Those are, are, are great schools. But, but you might not get in. Are you sure? Are you sure that you really want to apply to them? Are you sure? And, and my friend said, Yes. And the counselor pushed back, and then the counselor passed him another list of schools and said, here, why don't you consider these instead? They should be good enough for you. Now, my friend Rob didn't take the counselor's advice. Uh, He applied to the schools where he was interested, and he ended up going to Cornell and now has a PhD in geophysics. For, For whatever reason, his initial appointment with the counselor has has always bothered me. The, the whole idea that, that someone who is supposed to encourage and, and, and push and lead students into flourishing, to work with them to use their gifts to make the world a better place, would place limits on what a student could or couldn't do. It just, it just hasn't sat right with me. Now, now, maybe that counselor was just being realistic trying to keep Rob from being overwhelmed by failure. But who knows? But we can't make an impact in today's world unless we're willing to take risks as we live out our calling. It's true for us as individuals, and it's also true for us as a church community. So in the passage that we just read, from Ephesians, Paul, he he prays that the church in Ephesus might experience its full potential. And what I mean by potential is that Paul desired for them to fully live into their God-given identity, to not stop short of it. He he writes a prayer of sorts, and he articulates what, what was necessary for that to happen. First, he prays for strength for them. But it's not just any strength, it's strength in the inner being that only comes through the spirit. There are two other places that that Paul uses a phrase like this. One is in Romans chapter 7. He he uses it when he's talking about an internal war that's happening within him, where where he writes that he wants to do good, to delight in God's law in his innermost being. But but he's got this sinful nature also going on with him, and he's, he's wrestling with the two of them. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, he's talking about seasons of trouble and difficulty. And he writes, don't lose heart, even though the outward self is wasting away. The, the inward being, the inner being is being renewed each and every day. So as Paul writes for the strength, he's asking God to, 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 to encourage the, the Christians in Ephesus to experience that inner strength. To be rooted in love each and every day. For us, it's the reminder that even when life gets difficult, and it most surely will, if we want to make, an e- make a meaningful impact in, in an ever-changing world, we need to commit to daily renewal. It's what we talked about a couple weeks ago with abiding in Christ, with remaining in Christ. Which is what Paul gets to next in his letter here with the Ephesians That that daily renewal happens so Christ may dwell within us. Remember, two of the the most important words in Paul's letters are the words in Christ. For for him, those who are in Christ are united with him. That they're not condemned. They're a new creation. The king dwells in their hearts and provides a sense of security, a sense of purpose. Now, there's a reason we translate Paul's words here as that Christ may dwell in your hearts and not dwell in your heart singular. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, he points out that in the Western church, we we tend to miss the point Paul's trying to make here. We, We individualize it. So we talk about faith as a personal conversion experience instead of a corporate conviction. But in reality, Paul writes a lot more about Christians being in Christ than Christ being in Christians. Our individual experiences are important. Don't hear me wrong. But we need to see those individual experiences in in, in the bigger picture of all that's happening within God's family. There was a, a Scottish preacher named James Stewart who spent a lot of time studying what what Paul meant with this phrase, this in Christ phrase and and what it calls for. And and he suggested it calls for a change in our our posture. I think I've, I've mentioned this before here at WBC. The first change invites us to look outward instead of inward. So it's not about what what we can do on our own, but about what God has already done and is doing for us. And we start to concern ourselves with others because the world doesn't revolve around us. The second change in posture that Stuart mentions is inviting and invites us to, to look up instead of down. We don't dwell on our shame because of our brokenness, because of our sin. We look to the beauty and purity of Christ. We look up. And third, those who are in Christ don't look backward. They look forward. It's not dwelling in the past, but looking forward to what lies ahead, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter three. These three changes in posture, looking outward instead of inward, up instead of down, forward instead of of backward. They give us a blueprint for for how how we can make an impact in today's world. And then Paul he he prays for understanding. I love this part of the letter because because I can almost see him writing the words and then, then kind of laughing at himself. It's as if he's writing he he as he's writing he, he realizes that there's not really adequate words to describe God's infinite love. So so he re- relies on these open ended measurements. Oh, the width of God's love, the the height of God's love, the depth of God's love. His prayer isn't that Christians in Ephesus would would wrap their heads around God's love for them, that they'd be able to explain it all or understand it all or make sense of it all. His prayer is that they would experience it. That's what he means by understanding. The, The word that he uses for grasp literally means to seize. So he's praying for them to seize something that surpasses their knowledge. I think one of the the biggest errors we've made in the church in the last hundred years or so, especially in traditions like ours that that tend to place academia up on this this pedestal, is that we spend a lot of energy or spent a lot of energy trying to outthink those with whom we disagree. Now, if we've learned anything from all the division that's taken place in our country over the last year, it's that trying to argue someone into agreement with you, it almost never works. It rarely works in politics, and it's equally as rare in faith and religion conversations. For a long time, many of us we, we in the church, we, we turned to Jesus' arguments and debates with the Pharisees, and we saw them as a model for how we might engage with others but we ignored the imitations he extended to people to experience something they couldn't explain. The deep and wide love of Christ is beyond anything you or I can describe with words. So why do we spend so much energy trying to prove that we're right and that someone else is wrong? We have a much better chance of making an impact for God's kingdom in today's world By actually showing our neighbors something that they can't fully explain. Something that we can't fully explain. Reminding them that God's love is so much bigger than anything we can explain with words. Paul ends by by praying that Christians in Ephesus would be completely filled with the fullness of God. There's a legend from the 1880s about a British army officer named General Gordon. He was a devout Christian and he was on his way to Sudan on a, a mission to, to fight against the slave trade. And the Sunday before he departed, he, he drove around London going to all of the different churches he could, he could think of. And he would take communion at each church. And when he was asked, well, why, why are you doing this? Why are you taking communion six or seven or eight times in one day? And he said, it's so that I can start my journey brim full of God. Now, I'm not sure that taking communion that many times on a Sunday makes, makes any difference, but I like the idea of approaching the world in which we live today brim full of God, ready to make a difference, daring to be brave enough to be salt, Enlight light, each and every day. Proverbs chapter eleven verse ten starts, when the righteous prosper or flourish, the city rejoices. The word used for rejoice here is is only used one other time in the Old Testament. It's a big word. This reserved for the type of celebration we picture where people flood the streets for a party. To celebrate. You can almost translate that the proverb When God's people live into their identity, everyone benefits. Everyone is impacted. May we be a church community that makes a difference in today's world. Amen.